will be in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45 today. Now, we live in a broken world. It doesn't take much to see that. It's broken by sin. Um, and as we look around at all that's broken, the way it's broken, we can often wonder if there's any hope for this world. Everything seems to be failing. Uh, politics, people, institutions. This results in distrust and deep dysfunction, deep disillusionment, uh, deep despair. Things and people we have counted on for probably all of our lives, for generations, seem to be crumbling before our eyes. And we wonder if there is anything left we can count on. And there is. God, His Son, His Spirit, in His Word. Hebrews 13 and 8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means God's character never changes and God's ways never change. God's ways are revealed to us in His Word. God, re- God esteems His Word very highly. The psalm I read at the beginning, Psalm 138 and verse 2, it tells us God has magnified His Word even above His name. And part of what we know from this, what this means is we can trust God's Word because God's Word is backed by God's character. And God's character is such, we can trust He will keep His promise. All of His promises. And we see this picture of a promise-keeping God in the book of Joshua. So open your Bible to Joshua 21, verse 43 to 45 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Page 185 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Joshua 21:43 says, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He sware to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that He sware to their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Title of the message this morning is Moving Forward to Fulfilled Promises. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come with a desire to meet with you, a desire to hear from you, a desire for your spirit to take your word, make it living and active in our life, to challenge us, to change us, to convict us, to restore us, to revive us, to to just generally help us in whatever ways we need help that you can help us, God. We need you today. Fathers, we look at our world, the brokenness of the systems and the world is, is terrible. And Lord, if we're not careful, we will let our really a growing distrust in, in what's going on in the world give us a, a growing distrust in you. Maybe you are just like everyone else. Maybe you will let us down as others have. So today as we look at your word, renew our hope, and renew our faith, remind us, O oh God, that Your word is true, that you are real, you are here, you are active and at work in our lives. And if you have said it, you will do it. You are faithful 100% of the time. Fill me this morning with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing, in many ways, what we're seeing in these few verses is a summary of all we've seen in Joshua. And really, 
All kind of we've seen leading up to Joshua as well. Hundreds of years before our text, God made a promise to Abraham to give this land where they are to his descendants, who God promised would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. A big promise to anyone, but especially a big promise to a man in his mid-70s who has no children. His wife is also around the same age and there are no children. God gives this enormous promise to them. Well, God keeps the promise of a child and that child has a son and that child has a son and it and it kind of goes on and God reaffirms this promise to all of Abraham's descendants until it gets to Moses. And God calls Moses to be his servant. He reaffirms this promise to Moses. He will give them the land. And then Moses leads them up to the edge. It's time for Moses to go. Moses passes and God reaffirms this promise to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all the people, unto the land which I do give to them, even the children of Israel, every place the sole of your foot shall tread, that is land I have given you, as I said unto Moses. Now everything we've read up to this point in the book is the Lord fulfilling this promise to Moses, or to Abraham, to Moses, and to Joshua. And the idea of the Lord being the one to did it is, is key to this passage and, and really key to the whole book of Joshua. Right? Because notice in this passage what it says. The Lord gave unto Israel all the land. Verse 44. The Lord gave them rest round about. At the end of verse 44. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Verse 45. There fell not any good thing which the Lord had spoken. The Lord had spoken promises and then the Lord had fulfilled those promises. These are all the activities of the Lord. And the activity of the Lord has been a key theme in Joshua. Joshua leads them to the edge of the Jordan River and the Lord parts the Jordan River so they can walk through on dry land. They come up with it. They get to the edge of Jericho. The Lord gives them a plan about what to do. They fulfill God's plan and they walk around the city and the Lord makes the walls to fall down. When it came time to fight the coalition of forces, the Lord rained down hailstones upon the enemy and killed them. And then when the day waxed on and it was getting to where it was going to be dark, the Lord made the sun to stand still. The Lord did it. This is the key theme throughout the book of Joshua. But we also have to recognize the Lord didn't do it in a vacuum. Right? So in this passage, here's what I mean by this. In this passage, other than the Lord gave them rest round about, there is something Joshua and the Israelites did to participate in the fulfillment of God's promise. Right? So let me explain what I mean. The Lord gave them the land, but they had to possess it and dwell therein. They actually had to go there. They had to, to walk on the land God had promised to give them. The Lord delivered their enemies into their hands, but they still had to fight. They had to march all night. They had to swing swords. They had to fight for many years. The Lord spoke promises, and none of them failed, but they had to believe, and they had to walk in them, and they had to go into the land. Right? They had to participate 
in what God had promised in order to see the fulfillment of this promise. So we look at this passage, though, we, we could come up with something and say, well, but here's the deal. We know because we've already studied that they didn't fully take the land. They didn't take it all. They, they left some of the people of the land in almost every land of the tribe. And, and that true, that's true, that's essentially correct, but it misses the point of the passage. There is a this fourfold emphasis of what the Lord has done. That is the emphasis. The Lord did this, the Lord did that. Now the word translated as Lord in our English Bibles is the, the Hebrew word, it is Yahweh, the covenant name for God, or the promise keeping name for God. So the indication is later disappointments or later failures are on the part of Israel. It's not that God didn't do what He said He would do. It's that they didn't do what God said to do. They were unwilling. They were unbelieving. They didn't move forward and do the things God had said to do. But God, the Lord, the Lord did every single thing He said He would do. Not, not one thing He said would happen failed to happen. He completely kept His promises to them. So our key truth is the Lord who kept His promises then is the Lord who keeps His promises now. And this is a key part of everything in our lives as disciples of Jesus. We believe God's Word because we believe God. We believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we believe the God who kept His promises then is the God who keeps His promises now, now scripture is, is filled with examples of God giving a promise and God keeping this promise. But there is one particular example I want us to see today because of the magnitude of the promise given and the great cost to God personally for this promise to be fulfilled. So turn with me, and I hope you brought your sword drill Bibles. We're going to be going all through the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to in the beginning. Genesis 3. Of course, we're familiar uh, probably with the story. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve, leaves them in the garden. And they've got something to do and a job. And God comes walking with them in the cool of the day. Life is essentially perfect. They have one rule, the best we can tell. Not to eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil which is in the midst of the garden. And things go along for a period of time, well, until chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Shall not eat of every tree in the garden. So things go along well till the tempter comes. We have an enemy who seeks to thwart God's plans and God's will and God's ways. And, and he came to them in the form of a serpent. And he, he really, he kind of worked in three different ways. Three different ways which are very common in our day, which we don't have a lot of time to get into, but I do want to point out. First, he cast doubt on God's word. Yea, hath God said. Now, is that, did God really say this? Did, did God really say you're not supposed to? Are you sure that's what God's word says? Are you sure that's what it meant? Very much a, a satanic attack on God's Word today. Are you sure? You can't be sure. Things are different. All of this to cast 
doubt. We should always hear when someone says the Bible doesn't say what it says or mean what it says. We should always hear that in a hiss saying, yea, hath God said. Secondly, he contradicts God's word. In verse 4, the, serpent, the woman says, yes, yeah, that's what God said. The serpent says, ye shall not surely die. Okay, maybe that is what he said, but that's not what's going to actually happen. I mean, that's not real. That's not true. That won't actually happen. Maybe God did say it. He didn't mean it. That's not what it says. I mean, that's just not what's actually going to happen. He, he contradicts God's word. Again, we should hear that. And then, probably what is the greatest, he, uh, he challenges God's character. For God doth know, verse 5, the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God is keeping you from something good. That's kind of what he said. God is, God's not, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. God doesn't want what's best for you. He's, he's keeping you from something. He's not loving and true and kind and caring. He, he's not for you. He's against you. He doesn't want you to be blessed, to be this, to have that, to enjoy that. Again, again, I think we see these three things in our day. But I don't, that's not the point of the message, so we don't have time to get into it. And the woman saw that it, the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. The tree desired to make one wise. And she took the fruit thereof and did eat, gave to her husband. And he also did eat. She, she believed. She believed the devil's lies over God's truth. And she, she ate. She gave it to her husband who also ate. And immediately, things began to change in their world. Their eyes were open. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves. Shame entered the world. Chapter 2 ends with he and his, Adam and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, they know they're naked and they're ashamed. Shame came as a result of sin. So they, they were trying to cover up their sin, trying to cover up their shame. There's more though. It says in verse 8, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. They hid themselves from God. That they were separated from God. Always before, I think the implication here is this was the regular activity of God. God regularly came and walked with them in the cool of the day. But on this day, they hide from God. On this day, they are separated from God. They want nothing to do with God. So one of the results of the sin coming in the world is people wanting nothing to do with God, trying to hide from God. But God, who is great and awesome and loves His people... He cries out in verse 9, where art thou? This is a, a great part for us to, to just think on. Let it sink in. God went looking for them. Right? They were hiding from God. They weren't looking for God, but God went looking for them. It's the same for us. And again, this isn't part of the message. It's just kind of a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. We didn't just wake up one day and be like, I think I need Jesus in my life. No, we were like Adam and Eve. We were hiding from God. And God came looking for us. God came and initiated contact with us. If you're a Christian today, you've repented of your sins, you've believed on Jesus Christ, 
You did that not because you were so smart, not because you thought of it, but because God came and stood where you were and said, where are you? Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Man, that's good news. So God cries for them. But they finally answer and they were afraid. And fear came into the world because of sin. They said, we were afraid because we were naked. And God said, well, who, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? I, I told you not to eat. And, and blame, the rupture in human relationships and blame came in because God's asking Adam, did you, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? I said not to eat it. And Adam said, it's the woman. The woman you gave me brought this to me and I ate. Not my fault. Not my fault. And so God looks at the woman and the woman says, the serpent tricked me and, and I ate. So blame, that sort of rupture in the relationship came because of sin. And it goes on and God calls the serpent on the carpet and he gives a, a promise to the serpent. First he curses it in verse 14. Cursed above all cattle. Of every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go. Dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then here's a promise. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And, and he shall bruise thy heel, and thou, that he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now the promise is that someday someone would come. And this someone would crush the head of the serpent. And in the process, the serpent would bruise the heel of this seed of the woman. This is the first promise of the Messiah, the first promise of a Redeemer. Now, as you can imagine, in the early days of Scripture, in the early days of the people of the Bible, they knew this, they held to this, they looked for this, they didn't really know what it meant. Imagine if you didn't know the rest of the story and all you had was up to that point. It would be hard to understand. What does it mean? What, what is this person, the seed of the woman? How, how are they going to crush the serpent's head? How will the serpent bruise their heel? What does this all mean? Well, as the Old Testament goes on, God gives more details. So turn to Isaiah 52 now. To see one of the greatest pictures of what it would mean for the Messiah to be bruised while he crushed the head of the serpent. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, page 559 if you have a pew Bible. And I'm just going to kind of read through this, this whole chapter, 52 and 53, not stopping for much. But a few years ago, as I was reading through it, God just kind of spoke to me through it and showed me something. So I have written in my Bible, and I am going to read what I have added to my Bible as I go along. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. Many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred for me, more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men for me. So he shall sprinkle many nations. The kings will shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had heard, they had not heard, shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he 
shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty we should desire of him. He is despised and rejected of men by me. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And I hid, as it were, my face from him. He was despised and I esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. Yet I did esteem him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted for me. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. With his stripes I am healed. Like a sheep I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord hath laid on him my iniquity. He was oppressed for me. He was afflicted for me. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth for me. He was taken from prison, from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For my transgression, he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him for me. He hath put him to grief for me. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for my sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. And my righteous servant shall justify me, for he shall bear my iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death for me. And was numbered with the transgressors for me. And he bare my sin. And made intercession for me. The transgressor. Powerful passage. Talks about what the seed of the woman would do. What he was going to endure. And without taking the time to get into it. For we just don't have time today. We can see that the price to be paid was going to be severe. What the Messiah was going to go through. What he was going to endure. What, what bruising his heel actually meant. Was pretty extreme. And it is stated explicitly. The purpose was for our sin. Because of what we had done. We had gone astray. And the iniquity of our, or the punishment of our sin was laid upon him. A pretty steep price to pay for sin. The fulfillment of God's promise would be costly. But still, who is the Messiah who would pay this dreadful price to fulfill this great promise? Turn to Matthew 1, verse 18. Page Mary has told Joseph she is pregnant. She has told Joseph she is pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, like most of us, is having some problems believing that. And so he is going to put her away. 
privately, though, not to make a public example of her. And while he thinks about these things, the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Pretty steep price to be paid would be paid by Jesus, who was born of the Holy Spirit, making him the Son of God. So for God to fulfill the promise he gave in Genesis 3, his son was coming to be the one who would be bruised. And bruised according to what Isaiah 53 talks about. But also to crush the head of the serpent. So that we could be saved. And he does. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. He would... Go on and, and very literally fulfill the promise given in the Old Testament, particularly the Isaiah passage. And, and if you look, we don't have time to look at it today really, but in Isaiah 26, or Matthew 26 and 27, it speaks of the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I'll just hit some high points to show how, how you can see the Isaiah passage in it. Verse Matthew 26 and 29. I'm sorry, 27 and 29. They put a crown of thorns on his head, a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews. They spit upon him. They took the reed. They smote him. And after they mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his raiment on him, led him away to be crucified. This is after he's already been whipped and beaten by at Pilate's command. They take him out to the place of the skull. He is taken there and he is... Crucified, it says in verse 35. Which, being crucified, they, they summarized it in Matthew because they saw it every day. They knew what it was. But what it meant was a very bad thing. He was The crucifixion was a horrible, horrible way to die. Uh, you had nails driven through your hands, your wrists. You were held up. And you, you essentially you suffocated or you bled to death was how you died. And the Romans liked to watch people suffer. And, and so what they would do... So they would nail the, lay the cross down and they would nail the people to the cross and they would pick them up and drop the cross into a hole. And it would drop down and slam shut. And when it did, very often the victim's shoulders were dislocated, adding to their pain. And what would happen is the person was on the cross, they began, their arms were stretched out, they would begin to suffocate. And so they would either suffocate or they would try to pull with their arms and push with their legs, which you can imagine would add to the excruciating pain, so they could pull up and get a breath or two and then go back down. And that's what happened. Jesus was beaten, he was mocked, he was ruthlessly whipped, and then he was crucified, and then he died. And all of this was done, not because he was a sinner, not because he was guilty of any crime, but it was all done to fulfill God's promise. God fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3, even though it meant the horrible, brutal, sacrificial death of His Son. The God who kept His promises then is the God who keeps His promises now. 
If we can believe God kept his promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, even though it meant this, we can look at every other promise and we can say, surely, surely if God kept that promise, then he will keep this promise now. But when we think about the promises, one in particular is a big promise for us to remember in the day and time in which we live. And it also has to do with the promise of Jesus' coming. Much like the Israel of the Old Testament, we look forward to the coming of the Messiah as well. The second coming of Christ has been called the blessed hope of the church. And the idea God keeps His promises is essential to the idea of hope. If God keeps His promises, then we have hope Jesus is coming back. This is a promise God has given. Therefore, it is a promise God will fulfill. Do we believe Jesus is coming again? If so, how do we show up? What in our lives, in our values, in our priorities, in our actions, in our reactions, in our speech, what in our lives declares... We believe the God who kept the promise of Jesus' first coming will keep the promise of Jesus' second coming. When we look at Scripture, we find there are actions we will take if we believe the promise of Jesus' return. Turn back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Jesus teaches... On his second coming. And he gives some signs. That will testify. Of his return. So it says in verse 1. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And the disciples came to him. To show him the building from the temple. Jesus said to them. See you not all these things. Verily I say unto you. There shall not be left unto you one stone upon another. That shall not be thrown down. And as he said upon the mount of olives. The disciples came to him and. Privately saying, tell us when these things shall be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world. And Jesus answered, said to them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not troubled for these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and they shall betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because of iniquity, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. So there are, in that passage, seven signs of Jesus' return. False teachers, deceiving many. Would we say, we could look at our world, and we could say there are false teachers, deceiving many. Sure. Check. Wars and rumors of wars. Could we look at our world, and we could say, there, well, that's happened. There have been wars and and rumors of wars. Yeah, check. goes on in verse 7 to talk about famines and plagues and natural disasters. 
Do we see that in our world? Have we seen that as a sign in our world? Yeah, we have to check. Christian persecution, verse 9 and 10. Now, we don't see that much in America, not, not legitimate persecution, but it's happened pretty much in other parts of the world. Uh, there, are, this has been a, there are Christians who will suffer and die today simply for being Christians in other parts of the world. So Christian persecution, check. Iniquity shall abound, verse 12, check. And love will wax cold, check. And there will be a need to endure, a need for perseverance in the face of hardships. We say we see that in our world. Check. So seven signs given by Jesus have all been fulfilled or are being fulfilled. But there is one more. Look at verse 24. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end shall come. This gospel, what gospel? Well, the gospel we just described. Humanity sinned against God. God promised to send a Messiah, a Redeemer. And God fulfilled that promise in Jesus who came and died for our sins and rose again. So this gospel shall be preached in all the world unto all nations. Now, shall be preached in all the world unto all nations. That's a promise. It shall be. Not it might be or it could be or it would be great if it was. It shall be. Jesus has promised this gospel we've been talking about today shall be preached in all the world and to all nations. Now here's where we can mess up. We can look at America where we are and we can assume, yes, the gospel has gone because there are churches everywhere in our country. But everywhere is not like here. Check this out. This is global statistics of reached and unreached peoples of the world. Now, unreached, you notice the red on this side, 7,413 unreached people groups. So those are ethnic people, groups of, grouped by language typically, who have, who are unreached. Now, the word unreached, it doesn't mean unsaved. I mean, it does mean unsaved, but that's not all it means. Right? It, it means there are no Christians there. Right? It doesn't mean there are 13 Christian churches in their community and they live across the street. They just choose not to go to any of them. No, no, it doesn't mean that. It means there are zero churches in their communities or anywhere around them. It means they will likely live and die without ever meeting a disciple of Jesus and getting to hear this gospel. The gospel has not reached 42.5% of our world. That is 3.23 billion, billion with a B, people. But even with that, it's not that there's 42% that is unreached and everybody else is good to go. Look at the rest of it. Minimally reached. The next one, minimally reached, means there are people there who are professing Christians. But there are no evangelicals. But there's not many Christians. But there are no evangelicals. Right? So there may be, say, Catholics or Orthodox kind of churches. 
but there's no Baptists or Pentecostals or Nazarenes or, or what we would call the Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching type of evangelical churches. Then there's the superficially reached. And superficially reached means that there is, in fact, a large population that would call themselves Christian. But there are almost no evangelicals there. And the group that calls themselves Christian, their churches are probably sort of corrupt and in need of revitalization. So I've mentioned Bulgaria often. Bulgaria has the Bulgarian Orthodox Church and theoretically... Every Bulgarian is a part of that church and is a Christian because they're all baptized into that church. However, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church has been essentially corrupted since the Russians took over and replaced Bulgarian Orthodox priests with KGB agents. So the people who live there and would call themselves Bulgarian Orthodox, they have never actually heard of Jesus. They, they don't know the gospel. It's not that they have this great big church that's there and they can go to. And here, they've never heard. They don't know. The churches that are there that profess faith in Jesus need a deep revitalization, deep revival. And there's almost no evangelicals. Partially reached means there's a, a, a solid, probably a, a decent mix of evangelicals and others. And then significantly reached, which would be like what we see in America. But notice, significantly reaches only about 18% of the world. So the gospel has not reached at all, or minimally reached, or superficially reached, in a huge, huge number, percentage of our world. But Jesus has promised it will. Jesus has promised this gospel will be preached in all nations, in all the world. And he connected that to another promise. And then the end will come. But the end will not come until this gospel is preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. We are promised Jesus will return. We are promised the gospel will go into all the world and to all nations. These are absolute because they are promises from Jesus. But like Joshua and the Israelites before us, there is a part we have to play in the fulfillment of these promises. Our part is to ensure this gospel is preached in all the world. And unto all nations. As a church we are not a civic organization. We are not the the religious arm of a political party. We are a gospel mission. Tasked by Jesus. To ensure this gospel is preached in all the world and to all nations. And this means we must live and act like a gospel mission. And as a gospel mission, we give and we go. We send and we support to ensure this gospel is preached in Gaiman and beyond. This is what we must do to see this promise fulfilled. We must give and some of us must go. We must send And we must support to ensure this gospel is preached in Gaiman 
and beyond. Uh, Imagine with me for a second. Imagine someone comes to you and promises to give you $10 million at the end of 2021. And here's what you have to do. You have to clean the park, Sunset Lane Park, and keep it cleaned constantly. You have to pick up all the trash. You have to mow all the grass. You have to edge all the sidewalk. You have to paint all the buildings. You have to clean the bathrooms. You have to scoop up the trash that's along the edge of the water. You have to keep it beautified. And whatever that would mean or take, you have to do it consistently. Not just one and done, but you have to do it over and over again up until the end of 2021. And at the end of 2021, He is going to give you $10 million. Now, the person making you this offer, He is of unquestionable character. He is the kind of person that would do this. And... He has the money. He has the funds. He could give you $10 million at the end of 2021. Would you do it? Would you take that deal? Would you do it despite the fact it is hard work? Would you do it despite the fact some days it's going to be hot? And some days it'll be cold. And some days, few days, it'll be raining. And some days it'll be snowing. And some days it'll be windy. Would you do it despite very few people would appreciate the effort you're putting forth? Would you do it despite the fact people are going to come behind you and throw trash on the ground? Would you do it despite the fact some may even resent what you're doing? Would you do it despite the fact you have to do it day after day, week after week, until the end of 2021? Would you do it for $10 million? Now, some would say, well, I would, but physically I'm just not able to do it, so I can't take that offer. Okay, that's a legitimate issue. But if you could pay others to do it for you, and at the end of 2021 still get the $10 million, would you do it? Now, you don't get the $10 million before. You have to pay out of your money now. What you currently make, what you currently have, you have to pay out of that until the end of 2021. But at the end of 2021... You get $10 million. Would you spend the money now for the $10 million then? We are given a far greater promise than $10 million for ensuring this gospel is preached in all the world and to all nations. For when this gospel is preached in all the world and to all nations, the ends will come. We'll see the final and full fulfillment of all of God's promises. New Jerusalem, heaven, our loved ones who have gone before us. We'll see Jesus face to face. And be in a place where there's no sin, nor sorrow, nor suffering, nor parting, nor tears. And so much more when this gospel is preached in all the world and to all nations. Are we, right now, like the Israelites before us, doing our part, giving and going, sending and supporting, so we can see the fulfillment of this great promise? A part of moving forward to the fulfillment of promises is moving forward to ensure this gospel 
is preached in all the world and unto all nations till the end will come. Pioneer missionary Hudson Taylor used to hang in his home a plaque with two Hebrew words on it. Ebenezer and Jehovah Jireh. The first word comes from 1 Samuel and it means, Hereto hath the Lord helped us. The second comes from Genesis. And it means the Lord will see to it or the Lord will provide. One looked back at what God had done. One looked forward at what God would do. One reminded him of God's faithfulness and the other of God's assurances. This helped him to move on, taking the gospel to all the world and to all nations in the face of hardship and difficulties and trials because he believed the God who kept his promises then was the God who would keep his promises now. We too must look back to see how the Lord has kept His promises in the past and then look forward in anticipation to God keeping His promises now and in the future. And then, with that assurance, do everything we can to be a gospel mission who gives and goes, who sends and supports to ensure this gospel is preached in Gaiman and beyond. We're going to have a time of response The altars will be open if you want to come, but you don't have to. You can pray where you are. This is a time to check your heart about your desire for Jesus to come back. I mean, as we would all say, that's, that's the blessed hope. We look forward to that, a hope. But He's told us what to do, how to be a part. Are we willing to do what needs to be done to ensure this gospel is preached in all the world and to all nations so the end will come? And if we're not, mercy, don't we need God to change our hearts? So let's use this time and cry out to God in whatever way we need to. Maybe you need to receive the gospel for the first time. Maybe you need to pray about where God would send you to go and take the gospel. Maybe about giving. I don't know. But this is a time to seek God and say, what should I do with what you have said in your word?